Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In podcast. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us the amazing Alex Alamri, who is a neurosurgical trainee in London and the co-founder of Brainbook. He probably doesn't need much of an introduction. He is super renowned and super famous. His YouTube channel has recently hit 100,000 subs. A massive pleasure to have you on the show today, Alex. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure. Been watching you guys for the past few months. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> you, you are smashing it. You know, just being a neurosurgical trainee, that in itself, you know, we want to talk about that a bit in depth. But as is the tradition that's scrubbed in, we want to take it all the way to the very beginning. Um, a young Alex, tell us when you decided you wanted to be um, a doctor and were you always kind of going to become a brain surgeon? Uh, to be honest, it all started... Um... I mean, I, I, I make no, I'm not, um, there's no secret to it. I, I, I do tell people that I never originally wanted to be a doctor. Um, it's something that just kind of happened to me. And I'm always a bit hesitant to say things like that because I know, it, you know, it's hard grind getting into medical school, you know, even yeah. just trying to yeah. smash your GCSEs and A-levels and just trying to do your best to, you know, try and get into med school. Um, I worked damn hard to get into med school but it's not what I wanted for me um I think growing up my my real passions were for you know art and English to be absolutely honest with you I grew up mm, wanting yeah. to be an artist um or wanted to do something Amazing. like English literature in Cambridge you know that was my dream I wanted to do English lit in Oxbridge or something like that um or you know history of art or something like that I just really enjoyed drawing and I was, I don't know, I was a bit of a recluse kid, our only child. Um, so I spent a lot of time mm. playing video games. I don't know if any of your, if any of your uh, podcast subscribers are, are gamers, but I was a massive <laughs> Counter-Strike fan when I was, when I was a really fat wow. teenager, you know, I'd spend a whole weekend playing Counter-Strike and then obviously later on it turned into <laughs> Call of Duty and all of that. Um, oh, yeah, so yeah, I, I, to be honest, I, I coasted through a lot of my 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 teenage years not really wanting to do medicine and just hoping that mm. I could just keep doing what I was doing, enjoy art classes, enjoy doing English lit, and then hopefully get a degree and then at some point, you know, do make something of myself. Um, yeah. mm. And then what happened was, uh, well, my, my parents... <laughs> um, you know, I've got I've got Asian parents. You boys have got Asian parents as well. Yeah, you probably right. know the drill. We yeah, know where it's going. we know where it's yeah. going. <laughs> but uh, you know, you get you get the usual kind of art is what art's not a career. You know, what are you going to do after you get an English mm. degree? What are you going to do with your life? How are you going to raise a family on an artist's salary? Well, an artist doesn't really have a salary. Well, back in the day, they didn't anyway. Um, mm. So. I kind of just got pushed towards medicine. It was either that or law, and mm. I can't. I, mm. I've got zero interest in law, absolutely zero. <laughs> so, yeah, that that's what happened. I did my A levels. I did some weird A levels. I did um, I did English lit because I said if you're going to make me do chemistry and biology, then I'm going to have to do something I like, right? Um, yeah, nearly flunked chemistry, nearly failed my A-levels because of chemistry, actually. Um, oh, but it was yeah. a prerequisite for medicine. And um, mm. and I did uh, Latin as well at A2, which was a bit of a random one. Um, but that was good. Yeah. I found that really interesting. Definitely. And then, yeah, got into med school at St. George's. And, yeah, I was just kind of coasting through med school, not really having mm. an eye on what kind of doctor I wanted to be. Um took neuroanatomy obviously we all do neuroscience in second year at St George's and I thought neuroanatomy was quite cool neuroscience was quite cool um I loved I loved the fact that there was a lot of unexplained stuff in the modules it was a bit like yeah we think this is how it works this is generally what we think the loops do this is what we think this part of the cortex does mm. but it's a bit unsatisfactory it was a bit like you know just holding a black box in front of you and being like this part does this we think it does this and that's it just yeah. just take it for granted that that's what everybody says learn it try and figure out what these hideous loops and pathways do and uh, yeah it's really hard and people find it really difficult and just crack on but I 
I started drawing neuroanatomy stuff just, you know, through boredom and through just, you know, you just doodling stuff. And I found, you know, I could doodle pathways. And then people started coming to me and saying, oh, I've heard, you know, you you like neuroanatomy. Can you explain this? And <laughs> it's like, you know, went down that yeah. way. But then that kind of died at the end of the module. And I was like, okay, that was cool, but whatever. And then third year, so clinicals, um, started off with medicine, started off doing diabetes and endocrinology. It was awful. It's absolutely awful. I, had, <laughs> I, I mean, I say this now, I'm a pituitary registrar at the National. Um, so oh, it's, oh, it's my oh. bread and butter right now. <laughs> yeah. But I, I understand yeah, yeah. it now. It's completely different. Mm-hmm. Or I think I understand it. But back then, I just thought medicine is really not for me. This is this is horrendous. What am I going mm. to do with the rest of my life? I just can't stand it. <laughs> um, and then luckily, you know, it's funny. I met my wife when I was on my first day of medical school. And we ended up doing, um, oh. we ended up doing orthopedics together at Swellyock in Surrey, which is an elective orthopedic mm. centre. And it was brilliant. Mm. Like, we both really enjoyed it. You know, orthopods are really charismatic, funny. Yeah. You know, it's kind of, they give you like a lump of cement that's discarded from a hip arthroplasty. And, you know, they're like, oh, make something interesting out of it, not a cock and balls, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And you're like, okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. the, you know, they're funny and they make it engaging. Yeah. And then you're in a theatre environment for the first time. And you think, wow, yeah. this is quite cool. I think what I really enjoyed about surgery was that Mm. I think when you do medicine as a med student and you're shadowing house officers, SHOs, registrars, you're on the wards a lot and you you watch registrars and other junior doctors just being constantly bombarded with information that's not necessarily Mm. helpful. And they constantly seem to be torn between, you know, going and seeing this patient, taking a referral, going to clinic, this sick patient, arrests, you know, and that's all cool. Mm. And, you know, if you really dig medicine, that's awesome. Um, But I just found, you know, it just didn't grab me. But I found that when I was in theatre, it's this kind of controlled cocoon where, you know, a patient Mm, comes in, they're asleep. You've got a surgical team that's very multidisciplinary, well, not multidisciplinary, but has lots of different team members and it needs to be a really well, well-oiled mm. machine. And you see experiences mm. of poorly oiled machines sometimes, and that can be yeah. interpersonal conflicts or, you know, processes that don't work properly. But when you see surgery work properly and you see surgeons at work, I, I mean, I personally yeah. thought that was incredible. And then the first few times you scrub in, start assisting, cutting a few stitches, you know, really basic stuff. And you just think, I'm really involved in something. And you see the patients afterwards and, you know, they're either, you know, hopefully they're better. They're always thankful and you feel like you've made a real concrete difference. So I thought, okay, Mm. I want to be a surgeon. So that was it. That was my first light bulb moment. Um, mm. And then, you know, kind of coasted through surgical firms. I was like, orthopedics is fun. It's cool, but I don't want to be fixing hips and knees. Um, and then you see some other cool stuff. You know, everything is really interesting to you at medical school to begin with. And then yeah. and then it just kind yeah. of, you just kind of think, oh, actually, maybe not. This isn't for me. Oh, yeah. And then neurosurgery is not really part of a med school curriculum. You don't really get to go and yeah, experience no. it, right? Which I find really weird because it's probably, it's very interesting surgery at the very least. Um, mm. So I did, a, I did a taste a week at George's. Uh, I think I was supposed to be shadowing Henry Marsh for a week, but ended up just spending. Yeah, but so I, as is the way with these things, it's a name that you kind of get attached to to source out the placement. But in actual fact, you end up spending like a day with them, few days with some registrars, SHOs, house officers, you know that kind of thing. And um, it was really eye opening. I mean, went to different theatres, different days, saw loads of weird pathologies. I think uh, mm. I saw one of the consultants drain a brain abscess with a needle and a syringe, just freehand, and so much pus wow. came out. And I just thought, oh, this is insane. This is this is crazy. That's someone's brain that that's happening to. Yeah. So yeah. I saw an aneurysm being clipped. That was that was one of the gnarliest first neurosurgical operations I watched. Um, that was quite crazy. Mm. Um, yeah, just saw loads of different stuff. I saw loads of neurosurgical patients on the wards. 
so the pathology was cool. The surgery was obviously very cool. Um, you know, it's like it's neurosurgery. Oh, very complicated, yeah. very black box. Yeah. No one sees inside the specialty, that kind of thing. But then, um, you know, I've, the, the registrars you, f- you find and the SHOs a lot of the time were very, they kind of lived and breathed it, you know. It was it was very much. Mm. It's not just a case of always being there. Yes, there, there's loads of doctors that are always at work. There are loads of doctors and, and nurses and all kinds of multidisciplinary team members that work really hard and put their all into it. But there was this yeah. when you when you meet a neurosurgery trainee, especially back then, there was this real hunger. Um, yeah. There was this real yeah. fire to learn more, do more, practice more just be involved and you know their level of knowledge was astounding and back then as well you know their level of knowledge of general medicine and managing patients on the wards was very different you know they managed a lot of mm. um, quite complex medical staff on the wards with a bit of medical input now and again but I really like yeah. that it seemed like a really holistic comprehensive specialty mm. you know and it tied in well with neurology and it, I just found it fascinating um, so yeah, that's when I decided I wanted to do neurosurgery. Um, did did you did you get to taste other um, surgical fields before completely deciding? Yeah, I think um, so. I mean, you know, you say you decide to do something, right? It's like you get this mm-hmm. this passion to yeah, that's what I really want to do. You get this fire in you to kind of pursue it. But, you know, you've still yeah. got to complete medical school. You've still got to go do okay, other exactly. firms and yeah. attachments. Um, in final year, I did an assistant house officer job in Frimley Park uh, with, in general mm-hmm. surgery. That was that was actually really awesome. Um, yeah. It's a military hospital. So, you know, you've got military trainees there. They've got a very different attitude to other, you know, they're very yeah. can do, will do, do it now, yeah. really get you involved, <laughs> yeah. you know. You know, yeah. as a med student, you know, I'll say assisting mm-hmm. chest strain insertions on the ward, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's just, it was good. And again, at the time, you're like, oh, actually, this wouldn't be so bad if I had to do it. But then you keep going yeah. back and thinking, no, actually, that's, I, I still think that's what I want to do. So, yeah, it, it, mm-hmm. it does wax and wane, of course, but you tend to have mm-hmm. this underlying urge and fire to, to do that thing that you think you want to do. Definitely. Tell us about foundation training. And did you kind of go straight into neurosurgical training straight off the bat? Or did you take a few years out to kind of live and dab in a few? Things? Yeah. So foundation training is a bit of a funny one. I mean, that was one of my that was one of my first major stresses as a as a newly qualified doctor and um, just generally as as a human being with a salary and being out in the world on their yeah. own and not living with mum anymore. Um, yeah. So I chose. Uh, Cambridge for my foundation program because there there were a lot of neurosurgical jobs within the foundation mm. program there. There were there were twelve slots, and I placed thirteenth in uh, in the foundation program rankings, which mm. was super annoying. So I had to go to Cambridge, but I didn't have a neurosurgical job, so that was that was a bit oh, painful yeah. to begin with. But actually, I did the majority of my training in a DGH which I can say is above and beyond the best way to do training when you're very junior. Absolutely incredible experience. Um, I worked at a hospital called Hinchingbrook that honestly was really, really fantastic training, absolutely amazing staff, Mm -hmm. you know, great consultants. You had this central little mess where all the doctors and surgeons from different teams would go and chill and and hang out in the middle of the day. It it was just awesome. Compared to like the big teaching hospitals, which would be perfect for NF1, you're fresh out of med school. Yeah. It it still feels like home compared to like a massive teaching hospital. It does. Mm. Absolutely. No, I completely agree. It did feel like a home away from home, especially because I'd, I'd mm. moved away from home, you know. Yeah. Um, mm. So, yeah, I did my general medical jobs. I did some, I ha- had a general surgery job. Um, because it was a DGH and I was a house officer that was interested in surgery, I actually went to theatre loads um, and got to do mm. got to do loads of stuff in theatre. And it was really, it was affirming because you're being taught general surgical skills, which is really, really important, really important. Um, you pick up how the theatre works, how to tee up patients for theatre, 
um, how to just generally handle instruments and talk to people in a theatre capacity. Mm. It, it's all really important theatre etiquette that you don't want to be learning when mm. you're just thrown into specialty training. Um, so yeah, I did loads there, and then I did vascular surgery at Addenbrooke's, which was which was actually really fun. Uh, you know, massive teaching hospital. It was proper balls yeah. to wall surgery a lot of the time. The um, I think one of I had an experience there where I where I where it really cemented for me that I definitely wanted to be a surgeon rather than anything else, and uh, mm. that was when. So you know, uh, there was a patient with a ruptured AAA that came in, and I think the reg ran down to assist the consultant uh, in theatre. Oh, sorry. So the reg ran down to assist the consultant in theatre. And I tagged along just to see because I'd never seen a ruptured AAA surgery before and yeah. so on. And it was an open repair, obviously. Um, I walked into theatre and there were two consultant surgeons, vascular surgeons who were operating. And there were two anaesthetists there because the patient's blood pressure was yeah. unreadable. They're just pouring blood products in, trying to maintain a blood pressure. Mm. Really, really yeah. high stress scenario. Really, you could feel it in the air. I mean, everything was it just was dead quiet, you know. And I, I just walked over. I wasn't scrubbed, but I just peered in to see what they were doing. And I, you know, these two consultants, very experienced, were operating together in tandem, and they were just—they weren't even communicating. It was—it was all nonverbal communication. They knew the steps so perfectly. They knew what they needed to do, and it just worked. And it was so fluid. Incredible. And you know, the, the anaesthetists were working with the surgeons. Very clear communication. Everything was just beautiful. And it was just one of those, you know, hair on the back of your neck moments where you just think, "This is what I want to do, and I want to be like that when I grow up." Um, yeah. yeah. So actually, vascular surgery. Describing it makes me feel like just hearing kind of, that. Yeah. Just, you can just. Like, you can envision that moment. genuinely yeah, it just exactly felt like that. it you could cut yeah. you could cut the air and you know you could cut it with a knife there was so much tension in the air but it didn't feel yeah. stressful because they you know they just had this aura of calm and control about them mm. you know and, and it's rare yeah. it's rare for doctors to have that mm. we all try and achieve that some of us will do better than others, but you know, if you can achieve something like that in your career, then I think that's something commendable. No. So, yeah, I mean, vascular surgery for a long time was up there, and my things to do if if I couldn't achieve my plan A, right? Yeah. So yeah, then um, then I applied for neurosurgery and I didn't get in. So. <laughs> um, oh seriously, I don't know. That. No, no, no. Oh, okay. So, I okay. mm-hmm. I didn't even shortlist for an interview. Um, I, did you apply to come back to London or did you want to stay in here? So so it was national selection so you don't you don't really oh, initially okay. get that choice you just apply to the pool mm. you're you're shortlisted based on uh this kind of not tick box to an extent white box spaces you fill out all sorts mm. of stuff and I had a I think I had a decent CV to get shortlisted but I didn't okay. for various reasons um mm. so I took some time out of training and I moved back down to London after foundation and um, I took up a role as an anatomy demonstrator at King's, which was cool. I, amazing. That was cool. Again, it, it's stressful because a lot of people, you know, they say, oh, yeah, teaching, teaching's chilled out. It's good vibes. But you know what? I mean, if you're if you're teaching most of the day, every day to different groups and different students and different areas of anatomy that you you know reasonably but you know in order to teach this stuff that's complex you need to really know it inside out and a lot of students obviously know their stuff too right you don't want to be caught out not knowing the basics so this is not a medical it's really not a good look it's not a good look at all Send the papers, mate. It's wrong. Take it down. But yeah, no, yeah absolutely. So um, you know, there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. It's hard. You're you know talking, quizzing, interacting, different groups every 45 minutes to an hour. You're with cadavers. It smells of embalming fluid. You're shattered by the end of the day, and it's just constant. Um, but I learned a lot. Um, I bolstered my CV, and then uh, and then what did I do? 
I think I either went into core surgical training or I went to King's. I keep getting them mixed up. But at, at some point, mm-hmm. I, I applied to do neurosurgery training again, and I didn't get shortlisted again, um, so which was... twice twice now. Yeah, I mean, by that point, my... How were you feeling at the time? Pretty yeah. awful. Pretty awful. Um, it wasn't just... Um, it wasn't just coming from a background where failure wasn't an option, right? You know, we, we mm-hmm. if you go into medical school, especially more back in the day, now I think people are, the general feeling is that people are a lot more chilled out about a lot of, yeah. you know, I'm not going to mm-hmm. say back in the day, but yeah. <laughs> in previous, ta- <laughs> in previous time, it. you know, culture is changing every day, right? And mm. failure was not an option. And I'd failed twice in a row to even get shortlisted for an interview, which for yeah. one makes you think, is this the right thing for me? Second, it makes you feel like, you know, your your self-esteem is in your boots. It's very difficult yeah. to pick yourself up when you're not only trying to figure out why you're messing up so badly, but also trying to secure yourself a job for the next year to pay you a salary mm. that will also boost your CV. You know, it, it, there's just there's a lot to think about. I was newly married as well, you know. Um, mm. So it's just a lot of pressure. And I felt bad because, you know, my wife was a GP registrar at the time. I was kind of locoming and trying to figure out what I was doing next with my life. Am I going to get a national selection number? If I do get that number, is it going to be in London or is it going to be in some other part mm. of the country? It's just a lot of, there are so many things to think about. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I, I did. Um, so the story with the shortlisting thing is that, and this is really important for any of your med student li- listeners and subscribers, is that if you can have all the CV points in the world, but if you don't answer the questions on the application form and you don't write them properly, you're not going to get any points. So yeah. I was um, I was really fortunate to work with an anatomy demonstrator called Joseph. Yeah, Joseph, who this this guy was basically so intelligent. I mean, he was he was mad. He was so funny. <laughs> The guy was so clever that he decided to apply to cardiothoracics training and neurosurgery training. He kind of wanted to do cardiothoracics, but he wanted to apply for neurosurgery training just for fun to see if he could get it. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> and, and he did. <laughs> um, and he got a cardiothoracics number and he came first in the country, right? So I, was, wow. so I thought, okay, let me go to this guy and get him to read over my application form and see what I've done yeah. so wrong. And he read through it and... And he was like, man, what, what is this rubbish? Like, who wrote this for you? And, <laughs> yeah, you know, he just yeah. said, okay, just change this bit here. Answer the damn question there. Pop that bit in here. You haven't even answered this question there. And I was like, yeah, yeah, good point, good point. Did it, reapplied, <laughs> and my shortlisting score went through the roof. Um, it was mad. And Amazing. and then, obviously, I got, I got an interview, and then I got my number. Um, getting getting the interview was 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 stressful um mm. because again I, I don't know how much detail to go into whether you have many subscribers yeah. that want to know about the nuances of neurosurgical application processes Mm-mm. but i mean obviously this year it was all very zoomified but in normal <laughs> in normal times it's quite an involved interview process where Everyone goes to Sheffield. It's in the it's in the football club in some offices there, yeah. and there's loads of trainees there. and And the day starts kind of like you've got you've got a load of applicants who are sitting there. They've all been shortlisted for brain surgery and spine surgery, right? So they're all they're all keen beans. They all want it, yeah. and they're all reasonably intelligent human beings, right? So and you're all sitting there, and it's very cliquey. Some people know each other, some people won't, and that's when all the that's when all the kind of shit talking starts. Sorry, pardon my French, but that's that's oh, the, no, that's the only way I can really we, describe we want, it. We want yeah. the raw, we want the raw event. Tell <laughs> How us. does it feel to be there? Is it like it's just what's it? It's like? just horrible because I I'm not like I'm I'm quite a 
I don't know, people think that because I do social media and stuff, I'm really outspoken and loud and brash, but I'm quite a private person. And I really don't like mm-hmm. it when people try and, and talk you down and try and mm-hmm. knock you down. Because, um, you know, when I was a kid, I was really fat and used to get bullies and stuff. And it's all just part and parcel of growing up. But it really triggers me, you know, when people try and just put you down. And there, there was quite a bit of that going on. So, you know, I just went, sat in a corner. Amongst trainees. In, well, they weren't trainees in, yet, right? They, they weren't trainees oh, yeah, yet. Yeah, They're I mean, all applicants. Um, but, you know, there was a bit of that. It's all very subtle. It's all very, you know, I think the current term is microaggressions, you know, all that kind of jazz. So, yeah. um, you know, I just kind of went and sat in a corner on my own and just tried to ignore everybody. And then the rest of the day is, is kind of, um, there are lots of stations there are practical skill stations, you know, things like suturing, um, mm. setting up a neuro navigation system and using that, which is called stealth station that we use or a brain lab, mm. or whatever people call it or whatever they like to call it. Mm. Um, so that's interesting. And then there's another one where there's a microscope in a room with, um, with a plate of ball bearings of different colors and a load of different surgical mm. instruments. And you've got a certain time limit to, to create a pattern in, a, in another plate using whatever instruments you want. But, you know, the, it's all about kind of going in. And a lot of times people won't have used an operating microscope before. Even if you've done a neurosurgical job as an SHO, you're not going to use the microscope that much, if at all. Yeah. So you kind of go in mm. and you think, yeah, yeah, oh, shit. Uh, there's a microscope and there's a consultant and what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? So you just kind of have to go in and, and just figure it out. Right. And then the other stations are about a quarter of an hour long each. So, you know, portfolio, clinical management, that kind of stuff. Mm. But, mm. and there was a, a breaking bad news station to a lay person that was in there and, and things like that. So it's all very high stress. It's a bit like your final year OSCE mm. basically again, but your future mm. career there as well. So, yeah. But yeah, um, yeah, I was yeah I was doing core surgery at the time, and I found out it, I was doing a I was doing an elective list on Sunday with my old boss, and mm. um, and I just got this email through. I think it was on Oriel telling me where I was going to be working and stuff, and I got my job. And yeah. honestly, I just I couldn't couldn't think straight. You know, I, the theatre team were like, your patient's ready on table. Mr. Bellow's in there waiting for you. And I was like, uh, 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 I, 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 just, I just need to call my wife. Can I just call my wife? And they're like, uh. <laughs> I called my wife and, and she was like, usually when I call my wife, her first response is, shit, what's wrong? Um, what's so <laughs> so um, I, t- I told her I got a training number and... Um, I think yeah, we basically both started crying. It was it was one of the best days of my life. That is amazing. Um, what, what? It just felt like a load of. It wasn't you know you've got the happiness of getting the job, but the past few years had been so full of pressure, you know. Yeah. Going through different jobs, boosting your CV, locuming to make money, um, not knowing where you're going to be living, all that kind of stuff. You don't realize just how much stress you're feeling until that stress is lifted and it literally felt like someone had lifted a hundred kg suitcase off my head like i it was it was a physical feeling of stress relief genuinely um and my wife felt it too um if you were speaking to now someone in a similar position now because i've actually met a few trainees who didn't get training numbers on twitter i've seen loads of tweets where people have said ah damn i missed out Mm. What would you say to those people who've gone through such a difficult moment? There again, they don't know where their career is going. It's all uncertain. Maybe they've had two shots at a, a particular training pathway and not gotten it. Uh, what would you say to them now as an ST6 yeah. neurosurgeon? Um, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because a lot of these things are individual and unique. But there are certain things mm-hmm. that I learned from the process. Um First and foremost is make sure that it is genuinely the job that you want to do. So mm. obviously when I wanted to apply for MF2, I didn't have experience of the job. I'd had taste of weeks and I'd mm. met tea, you know, I, I tried to immerse myself as much as possible. When I failed the first time and I got my junior clinical fellow job at King's, I mean, you want to choose mm. a job like that, um, you know, lots of good units in London where you get not thrown in the deep end, 
but they're hard, fast jobs that take you to the next level. So they're good from just a general medical or surgical job perspective in that they teach you how to be good, right? But also it gives you the opportunity to go to theatre. Not that theatre is the be-all and end-all. Yes, we want to be surgeons, but you need to realise that there's a load of other stuff that goes with it. If you don't like the looks of clinics, if you don't like spine (laughs) clinics, if you don't want to be doing loads of ward rounds, if you don't want to be called at random times of the evening by by other Mm. junior colleagues about your patients that you've operated on, it's not the specialty for you, but you're not going to be able to figure that out until you do it, even if it's just for six months, yeah? So just do an SHO job in neurosurgery and figure out if it's definitely what you want. Um, and do and do a spine clinic. If you can do a spine clinic, you can do it. <laughs> if you can, if you, so so that's a good test. And then um, the other thing is, if you don't know why you're not getting in, and you know, if you don't have a, a, a secondary perspective, you, you need to get someone to either eyeball your application, eyeball your CV, mm. and help you figure out mm. what it is you're doing wrong. Um, because, it, like in my situation. It could just be something very simple, like not answering the damn question, which every lecturer, <laughs> you know, anyone in medical school will tell you the reason why you're not doing well is because you're not answering the damn question. Um, so those are two really easy, simple things that you can, well, mm-hmm. not simple, but that you can do, right? The other thing is um, failing is not easy, especially for, you know, people that are in high profile jobs or you know that, that are used to yeah. passing and pr- progressing with their careers and things it, it hits mm. your self-esteem and it knocks your confidence and I know that my self-confidence was in absolute tatters before I went to my interview um, it was so bad that at one point you know I developed a kind of mild stutter when people would ask me questions on ward rounds or, or in morning meetings and things and actually, I was really fortunate that there was a senior clinical fellow at the time that noticed this and said, you know, I'll coach you, I'll help you go through things. And he did so much with me. Mm. Um, genuinely, genuinely, if it wasn't for him, I don't think I would have passed that interview. But he he built me from the ground back up again. You know, my knowledge was there, the experience was there, but I had no self-confidence. So again, even if you do get an interview in whatever specialty you want to do. A really important part of it is having confidence. Now, you need to yeah. straddle the line between arrogance and confidence, right? You, you don't go into mm. these kinds of things arrogant because you'll fail. Nobody likes it. Nobody wants an arrogant doctor or surgeon working for them or with them. But yeah. if you go into something like I did, thinking I've got nothing to lose, I know what I'm doing, and I'm good enough for this job, mm-hmm. then that mindset and the focus that that gives you is far more important than anything else. Okay, oh, this is this is on the proviso that you have the knowledge and the experience, right? Mm-hmm. But if you have yeah, those yeah. things and you add that on top of it, you'll be on fire. Without the without yeah. that ex, without that confidence and without that you know yeah. boosted self esteem. You know, I've seen so many people in similar positions to me failing the interviews and you just think, how? You're damn good. Like, you're, yeah, you know, yeah. I've seen you on the wards. I've seen you with patients. I've seen you in theatre. You should be a trainee, mm. but they just keep failing the interview and it's because their confidence is low. Yeah. So I think those are my three things. Kind of going back, you find that you finally managed to get a training post. You feel this weight has been lifted off your shoulder. Mm. Tell us how it was to finally become... A neurosurgical training was it what you expected was it kind of you know oh this is this isn't what i sought it out to be tell us about that kind of part of your journey when you become a trainee there's obviously a sense of pride and you throw yourself into work and you want to do well um the thing is it, like in neurosurgery you move around a lot of different units you meet a lot of different people you work mm. for a lot of different people so your 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 circumstances and your experiences of things are going to be very different wherever you go um yeah so it, it's difficult to say is it what it what you expect is i mean yes the the brain and spine surgery part of it is what i expected um mm-hmm you know, dealing with improving your surgical skills and your confidence as a mm. surgeon is, is a whole separate topic, right? But I think 
I think training now is very different to what training used to be for various reasons. I'm yeah. not going to belabor or go into, but there, yeah, it, it's a different beast, right? You you have to try and get more training from um, fewer opportunities, mainly because of things like COVID. I mean, you have that, that's yeah. a year and a half of, of our time as surgical trainees with very limited surgical exposure. I mean, it's ramping back up now, but. Yeah you know, it's created, it's created a lot of stress amongst trainees. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a very different beast. You realize when you see your consultants and how much mm. admin work they have to do, how much bureaucracy there is, um, just generally how much work they do behind the scenes to get patients to theater. Um, yeah, it yeah. makes, you know, it's one of those things that you don't really realize until you're a trainee, until you become a registrar, really. Yeah. That actually, yeah. it, you know, it's not all, it's not, not all guts and glory and it's not all being in yeah. theater. There's a lot of other stuff. Mm. And this goes back to my point about doing a neurosurgical job as an SHO. Yeah. But even as an SHO, a lot of the time you won't see all of that. You know, I, I think I always used to think, oh, what the registrars are never here, they're always operating. But actually, if you look closely, they're yeah. always doing a lot of other stuff um, to make sure yeah. that their patients get absolutely. to theatre. So you oh, can't, absolutely. I think all surgical training is like that now. And yeah. you can't go into it with rose tinted glasses. So you just have mm -hmm. to make the most of the opportunities that you have. But yeah, neurosurgery training is awesome. Um, you you see awesome stuff. You meet cool patients that go through the most incredible things, and you just think, "Wow, I don't mm. know whether I could do that." And you, you know, a lot of them are heroes. You know, you you meet a patient that's going to go for awake brain surgery, and you know, you're assisting a consultant who's doing an awake brain surgery. You just find yourself like looking at this patient, thinking, "I." I don't know how you have the balls or the or whatever yeah. you know <laughs> to to do this. Um, it's just insane, mm. but they do, and so they get good outcomes. So sounds absolutely amazing. So now, uh, now you're a sort of neurosurgical training. You're going through the ranks. You're loving everything about it. Tell us a little bit about Brain Book. Tell us a little bit about how it's come about. YouTube, all of that jazz. How do you even fit that in alongside <laughs> training? Um, yeah, so BrainBook's a uh, kind of science communication and public engagement charity now. That's just weird to say that out mm. loud. Um, <laughs> it, it started off a few years ago as a kind of just a social media project where uh, it was actually, it was a, BrainBook was initially the idea of a, of a med student called Priya Rogers at King's. And mm. she wanted to do Twitter case-based discussions. And, and that's what it mm. was. And for various reasons, um, it you know stop started and we fell out of touch, but kept Brainbook going. Mm -hmm. And um, it turned from Twitter CBDs. Um, what I realised because I was doing a lot of this stuff on my own in my spare time, it was a lot of you know mm. creating little operative videos on the tube in the morning when on my way to work and that kind of thing. Um, I found that a lot of the people that were interacting were patients, not med students and not medical professionals. Oh, wow. mm. um, and they were like, oh, it's really interesting to see. Like I had this removed from my head, but I don't know what it looks like. Mm. And now I know. And now mm. I know what it is and why you guys do what you do. So I thought, okay. Um, so then started making the YouTube videos. And yeah. As you guys know, trying to build an audience is really difficult on social media. And you yeah, put a huge amount of time and effort into something for what looks like few views, very little engagement and so on. But it started mm. to pick up. Had lots of med students, patients, medical professionals commenting, you mm. know, saying, keep doing what you're doing, blah, blah, which is really encouraging. So started upping the ante, doing more vlogs and uh, mm. more operative videos. And the, the whole key mm. was to try and narrate the videos, uh, not using jargon so that you're communicating mm. something to a very general audience, which is really tough, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, then it, then it just really blew up. Um, We've got a bit of a presence on social media. Um, yeah. We've got links with WFNS Young Neurosurgeons. Uh, we've done all sorts of work with lots of people, really, and then no. turned it Did turned it into a charity, and here we go. 
Amazing. Do you think that's tapped back into, you said at the beginning of this podcast about the desire to do art, your creative side. Do you think that was something like Brain Book was naturally going to come out of you anyways? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think it's quite, um, personally, it's quite frustrating because I, I, wor- <laughs> I work with some supremely talented individuals like uh, Artbiotics, Killian Kearns um, and Merlin Strangeway, Ladvik. You know, d- these artists, you know, they're freelance um, mm. science communication specialists. They're all very unique, extremely talented. Amazing. amazing. Um, yeah. And I always just say to myself, God, I wish I could do your job. I really wish I could do what you're doing. <laughs> um, like that's what I would do 100%. Like, I love it. I absolutely love it. So, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. It may be that when we as a, as a team of trustees or as a committee, you know, commission these guys and girls to to create art for us for videos or social media or whatever, personally, I think I'm trying to live through them. I don't know. But... Um, mm. Are you secretly envious? <laughs> I, I am. I I, yeah, definitely yeah. 100% envious. But um, it's the videography as so well. It's like, the guy who's doing brain surgery. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's the guy. <laughs> it's, it's all relative though, isn't it, man? Um, yeah, of the, yeah. yeah I mean, the other thing is videography was quite cool. Like um, yeah. I got into photography when I was younger, but never really pursued it. And then mm. had to do a lot of filming for Brain Book, you know, not knowing what I yeah. was doing. And then we got a nice camera <laughs> and yeah. And actually I found a real, real enjoyment for filming and editing. Um, mm. A lot of the newer stuff on Brain Book is edited, is outsourced now because I, I don't have the time mm-hmm. to do a lot of editing. Um, mm. And, but I, but I do love it. And that's why I, Shameless plug here. That's why I've started my second channel, like my own personal channel. Yeah, well, we're going to definitely because I, I want to yeah. do a bit more of the filming, do a bit more of the vlogging, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, and get back mm-hmm. into the editing myself and try and up my skills there. Yeah. I don't know to what yeah. end, but but yeah, yeah. We'll, mm. we'll see. I think yeah, what's so nice and refreshing to see, and I think it'll probably one of the last things we talk about. It's it's nice. A lot of senior clinicians, surgeons are going on YouTube, going on social media, and giving us mm. an insight. Because like I said, we never get a, a taste of what neurosurgery is like. Even like anesthetics, ITU, it's nice to see it on platforms like YouTube what your life does until. Um, and obviously, this is probably something we should talk about is this misconception about neurosurgeons being, you know, you know, the surgery is not competitive, hyper-competitive, right? Um, and this godlike presence, not interacting with anyone. Tell us a bit about that. Is that something you've experienced or do you think it's something that's been phased out with this new generation of individuals coming through? Um, yeah, I mean, personally, I'm a complete dick at work. No, no, I'm not really. I'm not. I'm joking. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I don't know. I, I hope people think I'm a nice person. Um, we we do lose our tempers. Every, every doctor, surgeon loses their temper. Um, I think neurosurgeons get a bad rep. And I think, and I think a lot of it is fear of the unknown, right? Mm. We're all very highly strung because, you know, neurosurgery is like the ultimate risk management job. You know, um, Mm. sometimes you can be a really damn good surgeon, not saying I am, but Mm. I've worked with a lot of consultants who are exceptional. And you would say, if I had a problem or if my mum had a problem, God forbid, I would want them to operate on my mum, right? That's the gold standard of care mm-hmm. that you hear, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And the preoperative care will be excellent. The surgery will be finesse. It will be beautiful. Um, and then post-op, the patient wakes up with a severe deficit. And you don't know why it's happened. And you spend hours and days trying to figure out what went wrong. And, and you, you know, you feel crushed as a human being and you feel sad for your patient yeah. because they have to live with this for the rest yeah. of their life, right? And I think as individuals, that can, that can make you an extremely aloof or highly strung or just generally unpleasant person, right? And that, yeah. that can happen to any doctor. I don't know why neurosurgeons have such a rep for that. I don't know why, because I'll be absolutely honest with you. 90% of the neurosurgeons that I've met in my career to date have just been the most lovely, charming, 
patient-oriented, fantastic individuals I've ever met, right? They genuinely care so much about their patients. I think sometimes the spillover with other doctors and where this misconception mm. may occur is that as registrars, when we're on call, the volumes of referrals can be extremely high. Um, sometimes the referrals can not be so great. And when you're very, very busy and you're under a lot of pressure from within your hospital mm. and covering a catchment that covers a lot of London, which is which is a large number of patients, you you can be really really stressed out, and unfortunately, that yeah. that can sometimes spill over onto onto our colleagues, and that's probably yeah. mm-hmm. where it comes from. And it's all good and well saying, you know, be kind to each other and everything, but you know, people not only have stress at work and they don't have a lot of, you know, they've got a lot of pressure from their bosses, from patients, from referrals, from mm. on calls, but pe- we're humans too, right? I've got two children at home, two years old, five years old. I've got a wife at home doing GP clinics on a day-to-day basis, you know, doing vaccination clinics on the Saturday. You know, we we rarely see each other. I hardly see my kids. And when I do, you know, sometimes they're ill, sometimes they're this, sometimes they're that. Um, you know, mm. it, it's just so much of this going on in your head, yeah, you know, exactly. and, and it spills out, unfortunately. So, yeah. No, I remember one um, neurosurgical registrar telling me that referral phone just doesn't stop ringing. As soon as you put it down, another ring comes through and it can sort of, as you said, spill over when you've also got another patient being transferred because you've got uh, a bleed or something coming in. Um, It's because it's it's guys like me. When I was on IT working at like SHO, I used to call the neuroreg. ICP's going through the roof. ICP's going through the roof. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) So you probably get a lot of different calls from juniors like me. (laughs) From panicking SHOs. He used to hate. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was like quite a big show. So when like, you know, there's lots of things. You have to call the temperature, kind of do the uplift and cool them down and yeah was like man just manage it you, you know you've been here for how many months <laughs> and you're still cool because you do no for what? us it's the worst thing that's it's happening the- and the neurosurgeon obviously they deal with it with just finesse and it's not stressful for them yeah. i think what it is it's it's because it's the brain and we know how important it is and it's fear <laughs> of the unknown and the last thing you want to do is mess up for someone yeah at least a deficit right yeah and everyone's on edge no one wants that's to be it. known as that guy that that messed up or he went too high and he didn't inform anyone, right? So I think that does kind of overlap. But I'm glad you kind of mentioned it and it, in, a, in a holistic way, where it's, there's a lot of factors that you guys are dealing with and mm. it's just only natural and human to kind of kind of be a bit, you know, not abrupt or, you know, mm. kind of expose over. Yeah, no, I'm not, uh, saying, I'm not saying it's excusable. I'm, but what I'm, no, of course, what I'm yeah. trying to say, I suppose, is that, you know, especially if you if you follow Med Twitter, God damn, hashtag Med Twitter, oh, my, God. my God. You know, like, it, <laughs> wow. Sometimes, you know, sometimes I just <laughs> yeah, don't open Twitter. Crazy, I can't, I'm not very active on Twitter because I try and stay away I'm from scared. all the, the doom scrolling <laughs> and the, all the drama. Yeah. Oh, my God, the drama. I thought work was dramatic, but damn, Med yeah. Twitter. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's just, I don't know. I don't know. It, it just, yeah. You can't, no. you've got a certain amount of bandwidth, right? And no, of course. sometimes people are like, oh, the neurosurgery reg didn't really talk to me very much or was very abrupt or mm. they gave me a very yeah. curt reply or something like that. And it's like, it's not, it isn't excusable to be rude, okay? Like, I'm not condoning mm. that, never condone that. But um, you can, you, you need to help each other, not just being kind, but also questioning why you're picking up the phone to somebody, right? When, you know, mm-hmm. when I was a house officer, I wouldn't call a renal reg without knowing a creatinine and a urine output yeah, or a GFR exactly. at the very least. Yeah. Yeah? yeah. And even though I wanted to do neurosurgery, yeah, I shit myself when I called the neurosurgical reg. I would have scans up. I'd have the paper notes yeah. out. I'd know what color the I'd patient's cat the was. Report. Yeah, 100%. 100%. GCS, you know, you know, like you know with orthopedics, I will have at least looked at the x-ray and been like, yeah, it's broken. Yeah. It's like broken in the arm. Help. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> but now I think everybody's under so much pressure that you get referrals yeah. that are just referrals for the sake of it, you know? And yeah. there's mm-hmm. nothing more stressful mm-hmm. than having to deal with it when you're actually trying to deal with something that is important and urgent. Mm-hmm. No, so, yeah. 
Definitely. Yeah, I think um, I know, know what you're talking about before you no. pick up the phone. It's, no, it's always sure. a good that, tip for, for new doctors. That, that's for any, yeah, for any specialty. Um, I'm conscious of time and I know we've kind of kept you away. Um, before we conclude, any advice you want to give to any future trainees or just on being a good doctor, good surgeon? Um, it's always nice to kind of hear it from our seniors because um, you do mm. have that extra added experience that we don't. Um, so please do share something. Oh, that's a tough one, man. Oh, put you on the spot. Come on, man. You're, you're a brain surgeon. You, yeah. should, you should perform. <laughs> yeah, but this is something people actually care about, right? It's like words of wisdom from <laughs> someone who's been through it. You know, I'm only halfway through it. No, no, this is important. The, the, yeah. <laughs> I think um, I think it's at work. Just try and be cool. Try and be human. Um, mm. I think you've got to, in the jobs that we do, you have to live and breathe it to an extent it's your career Mm. and you're Mm. looking after patients and they depend on you but at the same time a lot of times you meet people at work and you just think you just need to relax seriously you need to Mm. calm down and everything will be everything will be so much better when you calm down your interactions will be better the communications with team members patients on the ward just slowing down and just taking a little bit more time and just chilling out seriously. Yeah. Like some days yeah. I'll think to myself, I'm rushing around. I'm being really not short with people, but very businesslike. And actually mm-hmm. it's not doing me any favors because I'm stressing myself out. It's not doing them any favors because they just think at the end of the day, what's wrong with him? Is he okay? He's not usually like that. Mm-hmm. And you just got to think, A, chill out. B, if something is on your mind... Find someone safe at work to talk to. Like if you've got personal problems going on, that can be your boss. That can be a a colleague, you know, that's on the same peer level as you. Just find someone that you can talk to and offload all of that off onto before it spills over into your work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I found that the stuff that limits me as a doctor the most has been trying to take everything in and not having an outlet. That's when things go wrong. Yeah, no, definitely. definitely. That's sound advice. And we've really enjoyed talking to you, finding a bit more about a specialty and just hearing your own story. I do hope it encourages a lot of people that do want to apply for neurosurgery to do apply because I know there's a bit of fear and anxiety of, is it for me? Would I Do I not have the personality mm. type to fit in? Because there is that type of yeah. advice given to yeah, people. Yeah, there's, there's no personality type. Just do it if you want to do yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And I think I'm, I'm going to yeah, we agree with that. But thank you. Alex, for taking the time out to do this. Pleasure, guys. Thank you. Pleasure, pleasure.